Chapter Three, Part Two of The Life of Clara Barton, Volume Two by William Barton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three, Part Two Her Illness Following the Franco Prussian War. Number Five, Hewson Street, Wanry Street, Walworth Road, London, July Fifth, eighteen seventy two dearest sister in one way and another i imagine you must have become aware of me in england although i believe i have never told you so directly by the presence of a half-finished letter to you dated march twenty ninth between paris and turin italy i see that i cannot have written you since i left germany just previous to the above-named date this has all been very wrong, for I received your good and welcome letter here, via Bern, early in June. You know me as neither abundant nor graceful in apologies, although it never hurts my spirit to ask pardon, and your good intuition will perceive this rather extraordinary sheet of notepaper to signify contrition, confession, and serious effort at amendment for all the interesting details contained in your letter i thank you very much they constitute my only landmarks of the old coast for months my explorers have been very silent and my scouts brought small tidings i remember that i wrote you when nearly blind i had used my eyes too hard and at night which I ought to have known I could not do with impunity. I passed some very dull weeks, very green and shady, with exceedingly long nights. Although after the greater pain and nervous excitement was over, I wrote a great deal with them closely bandaged. This helped to pass the time, but Mr. and Mrs. Sheldon, who were in London, became altogether dissatisfied with this state of things, and determined to put an end to some of it by coming after me and taking me, willing or not, to London. They had given me a short notice and ordered me to pack my knapsack while they came down the Rhine. I obeyed, and after a visit of a couple of days, we set out via Strasbourg and Paris. I was infinitely better by this time, still must not put any close strain upon my eyes. I made my goodbyes in Strasbourg, which was not an easy thing for the soul, and on reaching Paris we met a family party of Americans, friends of the Sheldons, that had just left London for a trip of six weeks through Italy. There were four of them, Mr. and Mrs. Holmes, and their only daughter and son-in-law, Mr. and Mrs. Taylor. Mr. Holmes was the American commissioner to the Great International Exhibition in London in 1862 and in Paris in 1867, and with his family has resided in London and Paris since, as American representative of science, skill, invention, etc. They were fine travelers. Italy was a familiar route to them, and it entered their heads to attach me to their party. 
I felt it to be a great piece of temerity on my part to think of dropping sans ceremonie plump into the middle of an elegant family party arranged for a private travel, and I said so, and said all I could, but all was overruled, and even Mrs. Sheldon said, go. It was too good an opportunity to lose, she said, and added at the end of her advice, what a fool I am, I always did give up all that I wanted most. And so we separated in the streets of Paris, March 28th, five o'clock in the afternoon, she for London and I for Italy. I had only a little hand satchel, having stored all my European luggage with my Paris bankers till my return. I have never written up my trip, so I cannot give it you but if I can recall the days a little in order, will try to account for some of them. I will draw hard upon my memory, which will probably help me accurately to whatever she will help me at all, she being not so generally treacherous as repudiatory. I wonder if that is an English word. It ought to be. If not, I can only plead two years' life in Germany." and surely out of all that I must have earned the right to manufacture one word. As sightseers, it was not, of course, our policy to travel at night, and we did it only twice, of which the first night was one. The road between Paris and Macon, just above Lyon, being as familiar to each one of us as that between New York and Washington, we could afford to miss it. Reaching Macon at sunrise, from there to Yulos, and passing the custom house, proving ourselves innocent of liquors and tobacco, we were ushered into Italy through the famous Mont Sanis tunnel, eight miles under a mountain which rises almost six thousand feet above the level of the sea. It is a well laid track in the solid rock, well ventilated, and lighted by powerful reflectors each half-mile. You remember that it was over mont Cenis that Napoleon I constructed a road to march his armies into Italy. At ten o'clock at night we were at Turin. By this time I was conscious of being some tired. Altogether I was not very strong, and just for variety, I had a chill in the night, and, of course, decided to abandon my journey and return. But as Turin was one of the cities to be visited, and naturally two or more days were to be given it, I could afford to wait and watch further developments. My chill did not recur, and although I continued weak for some time, I kept on the journey. Turin is a charming city, by far the most modern in appearance of anything in Italy, well laid out, fine broad streets, excellent markets, abounding in fruit, clean and entirely free from beggary. It seems also to have no poor quarter, the general practice being for every wealthy family to take into its service and care one 
two or more entire families, lodging them in tenements fitted in the attic stories of their own residences rather than below on the streets, thus at the same time holding surveillance and compelling respectability. I liked the plan. I don't know if it is one of Victor Emmanuel's ideas. You know that Turin was always his capital residence till a few years ago when he established himself at Florence, which now is in turn abandoned for Rome. It has over one hundred churches, very rich in jewels and antiquities. I remember in the Metropolitan Church to have seen the marble figure, sitting lifelike, of Marie Adelaide, the wife of Victor Emmanuel, and mother of Princess Clotilde of France. The private jewels of the church were shown us, for a consideration, everything in Italy is displayed for a consideration, but for no consideration could I undertake to describe them. Images of solid silver, men and women, weighing hundreds of pounds and covered with jewels, where sometimes one was of greater value than the massive silver image it adorned. The royal palace was most magnificent. The rooms were all shown. Here, in this gilded salon where their busts stand, were married Princess Clotilde and the Queen of Portugal. The plate-glass mirrors are twenty feet high, and everything accords with them. The armory contains an entire gallery of mounted knights in armor, full dress, horses lifelike, armed to the teeth, and among them lies the sword that Napoleon used at Marengo. Above the city is a fine old monastery to which we climbed for a view of Mont Blanc, Monte Rosa, and all the chain of southern Alps, snow-white and dazzling, stretching away into the eternal blue. On the 2nd of April, Tuesday, we took train for Milan, riding for hours in the bright spring sunshine of northern Italy, the Alps behind us and the Apennines before the wheat waving in all the freshness of early green and the vines just bursting into leaf. Here at Milan we were met by a young lady protege of Mr. Holmes, a young American girl who is to come out soon as a prima donna. She is finishing her musical studies in Milan, and while we were installed at an excellent hotel, our dinners were always with Mademoiselle Katrina. The great site of Milan is its cathedral, the second in size and magnificence in Europe. This also I could not justly describe. It is built entirely of marble, commenced in the thirteenth or fourteenth century, and, like all these old massive structures, never finished. It covers many acres and seems to be one sea of turrets rising at irregular heights towards the clouds. Although the comparison would be most inelegant, I will say that it reminded me of a shipping yard, where the marble turrets and statues take the place of thousands of masts. Indeed, if my memory serve me well, 
It has 135 spires and 1,923 statues on the outside from the ground to the top and 700 inside. There is on one of the roofs, which you pass as you ascend, far above the top, an entire flower garden in marble, hundreds of flowers forming minarets, and no two flowers carved alike or representing the same flower. It was a long way to the top, which at length was gained after many times of sitting, and for me, even lying down to rest on the various roofs, passed in leading from one flight of stairs to another, roofs of pure white marble, polished and glistening in the sunshine like the crust of the snowbanks on the New England hills on bright winter days. I wonder if I will ever see them again. Here again we saw marvelous jewels, gold, silver, and precious stones. The tomb of Carlo, who stayed the plague, is in a chapel beneath. The coffin and even the roof of the chapel are of solid silver. Mass is held here each morning, and on certain days of the year miracles are wrought. There are many sacred relics in the cathedral, as several nails from the cross, the Virgin's shroud, and a seamless coat of the Lord Jesus Christ, etc., etc. The picture galleries were especially fine, many celebrated originals, among which is Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper of the Master and Disciples in the original fresco, and the celebrated Ambrosian Library, so old and rare its volumes were indeed a curiosity illustrated volumes of the fourth century and the royal palace erected on the site of the old palace of the early dukes of lombardy where attila thundered about in his destruction later this palace like nearly all in italy had been at some time or another occupied by napoleon i here was his bedchamber unchanged decorated in scarlet and gold, heavy velvet curtains richly wrought in flowers of pure fine gold thread. Then the celebrated theater, La Scala, the largest in the world, its stage one hundred feet in depth and wide in proportion, and this not including the recesses. The pit alone holds eleven hundred people, and there are six rows of galleries, one hundred musicians in the orchestra. The principal boxes are purchased by the nobility for a season, a single box from four hundred to five hundred dollars the season. I name all these particulars for Vester's benefit. He may be interested in the facts. Our young prima donna stepped upon the stage, as our visit was in the daytime, and sang to us. She had sung there before to an audience of five thousand, but I think she took just as much pains for us, and I am sure we were not less enthusiastic. I expect some day to hear her sing when she is famous, but it will never afford me greater pleasure than when she sang to her audience of five in the great Scala of Milan. One little incident 
happening not long before, was so pretty that I am tempted to tell it you. Katrina, who is of German parents, but born and always lived in New York, had only been led before the public once, i.e., last winter she was the leading lady of the first opera in Turin, and on the evening of the close of the engagement she was called out to sing a little national air, in which she had been exceedingly popular. When she stepped before the curtain, she found the entire house a blaze of light, which at first nearly upset her. But, gathering up, she went through her air to the last strain, when four men entered and placed at her feet an enormous bouquet of the choicest flowers nearly four feet across. She managed to accept it, but attached to it was a note which requested her, when it should be faded, before throwing it away, to open it with care. And at the end of a week this was done, and hidden among the flowers were found a magnificent gold watch and chain, pins, necklaces of coral, turquoises and pearls, bracelets and rings, which I could not enumerate. It had been ordered and arranged in Geneva, and sent all the way through the mountain passes to her. I thought this was a pretty success for the debut of a little American girl, studying in a strange land with little money. As a child, she used to sing in New York with Patty. But you must be tired of Milan, and wish I would hasten on if I am going. Well, I will and so imagine this to be saturday the sixth of april nine o'clock a m and i was just taking the train eastward the day was so lovely so full of the springtime the grass and grain so green the swinging vines swaying over all the fields the birds literally bursting their little throats the fields filled with peasants in gay dress working to merry tunes and when you could draw the eyes away from these near scenes, they fell to the northward, first upon a line of dim, hazy blue, but over this, skirting the horizon again, the whole chain, peak after peak, of ranging Alps, such an unbroken line of glittering snow. Here on the south, only four miles away, the field of Solferino, where France lost one thousand officers in a day. At four p.m. we were at Verona, wondering if we should see its gentlemen, and giving certainly more than our usual interest to this subject, and at five we halted at a singular depot, with no rattle of cabs or hacks, no tramping of horses, still as death all about us, and as we walked out there lay waiting us hundreds of gondolas, black as a pall, some covered, some open, all drawn up to the side of the canal to take us weary travellers to our hotels. This was indeed novel, but we selected our carriage, stepped in with our luggage, sat down, and leaning lazily back left it to our gondolier to pick his way through the watery streets some wide some narrow 
leading into and out of each other like veritable city streets and lanes the ways on each side lined perfectly thick with old palaces and majestic buildings of centuries ago their fronts to the sea and their magnificent stone steps leading directly into the water and when one would pay a call the gondolier had only to bring his boat alongside and you stepped out as from another carriage to the steps of a mansion we were taken to hotel victoria made as comfortable as a first-class italian hotel can make one and after supper commenced upon the sights ah but there was so much to see not that it is a city of enterprise a flourishing mart of trade or business oh no far from it venice only exists upon the record of its former greatness take all this away and the travellers consequent upon it and i believe twelve months would find a famine there but there is little danger of this while byron and shakespeare remain bright in english literature here as everywhere in italy one must commence with the cathedral and having gone through this and some scores of churches the campo santo and the bell tower one is at liberty to enter upon the palaces gardens and theatres but venice offers some deviations from this general rule most cities have prisons but they have not all the dungeons of st mark all have bridges but all have not a rialto nor a bridge of size i suspect i do not need to remind you of many old or historical facts you who are always digging into the past will have them all papered and labeled and stored away ready for use but i might mention the seventy-two little islands upon which venice was built which were only a part of the adriatic and not reckoned as land at all a set of not warlike people from here and there in the vicinity having grown weary and afraid of their fighting and troublesome neighbors mostly from austria determined to place themselves in a position more difficult to attack came far over the sea to these little islands and commenced a city and gave a general invitation to all war-pestered, peace-loving citizens of the world to come and join them. From time to time they united their islands, built their houses for dwelling and trade upon the streets laid down upon the piles, with one side opening upon the street of earth and the opposite upon the sea, as I have before described. But the depravity of human nature— no sooner were they a little strong and comfortable themselves than they set out their ships to prey upon and plunder their neighbors and well-nigh ravaged the cities of the earth they decorated their palaces with the spoils of other nations married the sea and declared themselves omnipotent and divine among other things their religion and church must have a hero and they sent afar and got as they said the body of st mark brought it and great numbers of relics belonging to him 
buried it with the divinest honors in their principal church and named it St. Mark or San Marco. This was as early as the ninth century. It is a large but not handsome edifice facing a paved court, a piazza some 600 feet in length, surrounded by palaces now used for public purposes, stores, etc. All the world of Venice walks in the piazza of San Marco. The pigeon was esteemed a sacred bird with them, and he is still cherished here and treated with great honor. One of the curiosities to be seen are the pigeons of San Marco. I cannot at this moment recollect definitely enough to state to you how many hundreds are supposed to reside in the immediate vicinity, but their dinner hour is two o'clock in the afternoon. The great bell of the clock strikes three quarters past one, and they commence wheeling and circling into the court. They cover the fronts of all the buildings, sit as thickly as possible upon every window seat, hang in all the cornices, and stand in full platoons in every foot of spare pavement for a number of rods around the especial corner where their dinner is served. A young man, it was formerly a young girl, is appointed by the government as feeder of the pigeons. It is not necessary to say that he is punctual with his repast. He could not live with his tumultuous boarders if he were not. As the bell strikes two, he pours the grain from... The rest of this letter is missing, but from this time on her letters became frequent, and we are able to follow her almost day by day. Her health by this time was much improved. She established pleasant lodgings in London, where her old friends the Sheldons and her new friends the Taylors were, and followed her lifelong habits by rising at five o'clock in the morning and getting in four and a half hours' activity before anyone else in the house appeared for breakfast. She heard Stanley, who had just returned from Africa, and in the controversy which ensued between him and the geographical society she became a warm partisan of stanley antoinette margot joined her she too had lived through the war without breaking down but when she had nothing to do but to sit down at karlsruhe and paint she gave way to nervous overstrain mrs taylor found her italian trip rather too much for her and wanted a quiet place outside of london so they rented a summer home in the isle of wight and there spent some restful and health-giving weeks for a company of nervous invalids they appear to have had a very merry time the following jingle was written in London in 1872 for reading at a social gathering of a few families and America's friends, who met once a week for social intercourse over a cup of tea and light refreshments, enlivened by recitations. The family names are somewhat significant. Mr. and Mrs. Holmes, Mr. and Mrs. Taylor, Mr. and Mrs. Bacon, Mr. and Mrs. Darling, and Mrs. Cynthia Kerr, 
a friend than absent. Mr. Taylor was the inventor of the McKean drill. Since time commenced its cycles, or the memory of man, hath record or tradition of pastoral tribe or clan, they have never failed to chronicle that men from far and near have met to sharp or blunt their wits in liquor, wine, or beer. This ancient custom reaching back into the hoary past wears a dignity and prestige that rivals even caste, and bold are they who dare to meet in social gathering free, and call not to the festal board one of the classic three. But here's a jolly company from far across the sea, dares tune its mirth and sharp its wit, in a cup of good bohee. We're here from many hundred miles where the western ocean foams, but though a paradox it seems, we have not left our homes. The social homes of England draw us to her like a band, for we are but the children of this true old glorious land. Of the merry homes of England our great-grandsires used to tell, but with pride and joy we prove it here, that we've merry homes as well. Disclaiming all comparison, we write ours brave and free, and kindly and hospitable as any homes can be. But we have very English grown, so soon we habits take on. We cannot even sip our tea, but we must have our bacon. But English or American, it matters not a straw, for both hang out before the world without a taint or flaw. Go search through British literature down to her common laws, and find what strength and nourishment it from its bacon draws. And if you doubt America can follow in the van, Go test our Cincinnati sides and West Virginia ham. So perfect in itself is each, it's patent to my mind. The choicest bacons that can be are just the two combined. By the watery distance we have come, one might judge us merely sailors. But we're nay thoughtless or improvident, for we've even brought our tailors. One doesn't know how long ago the unjust trick began to stigmatize a tailor as the ninth part of a man. But though as old and honored as the judge's wig and gown, before the faithless falsehood I throw my gauntlet down. Yes, though it was with Adam for the modest blush that came, when he sewed his scanty fig-leaves and dropped his head for shame. Though old is this, and thick and black, and firm as granite too, we'll drill into a honeycomb and let the daylight through. So lay upon our tailor here your nicest chalk-line true, and measure him in soul and vim as he would measure you. You'll find, Sir Scandal, when you've done the best you ever can. In reach of thought and breath and depth, he's every inch a man. What did I say? I'm wrong. Crave grace. To err is ever human. 
ah with what pride of sex i claim his better half a woman though fair fideli and tender she walketh by his side he can neither make nor mend her but hold fast in his pride and though no mortals meeker we find from far and wide the best and wisest seeker for a pattern and a guide and does the critic here step in and call us frozen-hearted and lacking in paternal love that we so long are parted from clinging dear ones left to pine like caged and crying starlings hold sir here's ointment for your wrath for we have brought our darlings we hold them very near us with tender love and true their happiness and welfare are never from our view and though we're willing sometimes that they abroad should roam we would not spare our darlings forever from our home there's one methinks whose eloquence erst charmed this happy band who stays away through many a day in a sunny foreign land who lingered where the soft moonlight plays through the coliseum and troops of idle beggars wait for strangers' hands to fee em, or where the setting sun goes down on Monte Rosa's crest, and Hori Blanc bids grand good night to the cloudlets in the west, and who strays even now mong the vines and the trees, and walks the green slopes of the dark Pyrenees. Give us to be jurors and judge of this action we'd reduce this delay to a very small fraction. But being quite powerless our cause to defend, we must learn to endure what we cannot amend. As the best of a bad case, let's forgive her, shall we? And drink to her health in a cup of bowie. And now for our bumpers but one greeting waits, while we roll back our thoughts to the united states for united as one they must ever remain since the blood of a million hath rusted the chain with a link in each hand died the true and the brave and sunk side by side in the low martyr's grave their bones rest in peace neath the soil of their love while their souls keep calm watch on the ramparts above we would hide nay her faults this dear land of our pride we know she has errors on many a side she's restless and patient hurries on through her day and treads on old customs that lie in her way she's bold in her speech but there's nay lack of truth and her faults let us hope are the failings of youth Yes, she's young, oh, so young, and her robes are so bright, for she's made herself gay with the stars of the night, and thrown o'er her shoulders a mantle of light that the oppressed of all nations keep ever in sight. Oh, each grasp the tissue that floats on the wind, for hid in its folds lie the hopes of mankind. O oh, guard thou her ways, great eternal Lord God. Let her meekly but safely pass under thy rod, 
with her faults and her virtues we trust her to thee and drink to her life and our cups of bohe clara barton end of chapter three part two